The Enviro Show on SAFM. And The Enviro Show is indeed with me, Nancy Richards, coming to you each and every Thursday night between 9 and 10. So please, you could make it. Well, the dream cream dream green dream team tonight is Kim Winter and Rob Parkins. So without any further ado, let me tell you what we've got lined up for the show tonight. Well, at the Graham Sound Festival earlier this week, what was she? Uh, what should we come across on the village green? But a family of giant elephants made entirely out of recycled tyres. Amongst them, Nomku Bulwani. And uh, we're going to be talking to the birth father and sculptor of these elephants. It's Andreas Borta. After that, also represented at the Graham Sound Festival, was the youth, mood, youth food movement of the Netherlands in the form of Joris Lohmann. And... Uh, the YFM form part of the International Slow Youth Network and their plan, it seems, is to change the future of food and farming. We'll have Rob, uh, Joris on the line to, to explain all that. Staying with youth, the Youth Water Summit to, it came to a close today and it closed with the announcement of the awards for the very best water conservation innovations. The Department of Minister, uh, Deputy Minister of Water and Environmental Affairs, Rejoice Mabuvarafazi, will be talking to us about that and uh, she was handing out the awards. And a close after that in our green goodie feature. Very goodie idea, we thought, this one. The South African Express uh, Butazonke project designed, designed to help them make them just that little bit more environmentally friendly as far as is possible for a fuel-hungry airline. We're going to be talking to Deboho Maluzzi. He's the manager of the project. So that's what we've got lined up. Hope you're going to stay with us. And uh, don't forget, you're most welcome to be part of it at any time. You can give us a call. The number here in the studio is 0892 10 or send us a Facebook message on the Enviro Show on SAFM. Just incidentally, a heads up just to let you know that uh, this show is podcast each and every week. So if you'd like to check that out, what you do is you go to the SAFM website, www.safm.co.za, click on podcast, scroll down to the Enviro Show and you know what to do after that. So there we go. That's all the uh, all the info, but a little bit of eco info for you. Just uh, saw today in response to the Minister of Water and Environmental Affairs, Edna Molewa's support of a proposal that would legalise trade in rhino horns. Wessa cautions the minister in the pursuit of this strategy and would like to ensure that the precautionary principle is adopted, which states that the precautions should be practised in situations of scientific uncertainty where actions could cause harm to the environment. On uh, that, as things develop in that particular area, but on that very same subject, interesting, we just got ourselves a Facebook message from Jafta Maboko from Cape Town, who says the destruction of endangered species on agricultural land has an international dimension because of the significance of trade in animal products such as ivory, rhino horn, etc. Thanks very much, Jafta. And don't forget, if you want to send us a message too, it's the Enviro Show on SAFM. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. Well, first up then on the show tonight, you can just imagine our surprise as Kim and I took a little bit of a, a turn about the village green at Grahamstown and stumbled upon a family of elephants, all of them made out of recycled tyres. In fact, if you do have a look on our Facebook page, we put up one of the pictures, you can see the one called Nomku Burwani who it seems was named after the great Zulu earth goddess who has the magical ability to morph into any animal at any time and who represents a deep, meaningful link to the planet and indeed to our origins. Well, these are the words in the brochure accompanying the elephants, which were made by sculptor Andres Borta, who we have on the line. Interesting, also in the very same little brochure, 
There's a quote here that says, ancient elephant paths have provided the map for later human migration, both literally and figuratively, as humans have migrated to new lands for survival or for what they see as a better life. Interestingly, that quote was by Dr. Ian Player, and he's going to be one of our conservation icons in a forthcoming show, so do stay with us uh, for that, and we'll be bringing you icons, conservation icons, as and when we come up with them. And if you'd like to suggest any, you're most welcome, enviro at safm.co.za. Well, we have Andres Porter on the line to tell us all about his elephants. Hi, Andres. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Very well, very well. Thank you very much. And it was really wonderful to come face-to-face, or face-to-trunk, should I say, with some of your elephants. But, Andres, if I'm not mistaken, elephants, you are not new to elephants. I think you've been working around elephant iconry for some time. Why? Um, Nancy, probably for the last uh, seven or eight years, I... I started off by responding to an international sculpture competition in Belgium by placing nine life-size elephants made out of recycled wood on a beach in the Panna in Belgium. And it started off uh, one of my sort of conceptual journeys as a sculptor. Absolutely, yes, I've seen that picture and very haunting they look too, sitting there, or at least standing there on the, on the, on the beach. It's, it's a very, um, yeah, it's a very moving image. But elephants have stayed with you. Was that the start of your relationship or, or your work with elephants? It was indeed the start, you know. I, I never really considered myself uh, as part of my, my sort of, immaculate, you know, to, to work with animals, but given at the time, you know, when I was given the invitation to work in Belgium, uh, I did some research, some background research, and, and found that King Leopold had, had his summer residence in Depana of then Congo infamy, and Another part of the research led me to the extraordinary number of elephants that were hunted in the, what is now the Central African Republic. You know, and I wondered if I could imbue the elephant with a more stronger human environmental message and frame it within history uh, by re-looking at the elephant as a as a as a as a aesthetic or creative metaphor. I think that really started the journey off, and which sort of then once I had once I'd seen the extraordinary response to these life-size elephants, you know, it wasn't really something that I that I could have had anticipated. But once I'd actually seen the the diverse public response to these these life-size elephants, it struck me that the elephant obviously has an enigmatic and powerful bondedness with the human mammal, and perhaps they lay embedded within there an invitation, not only to myself, but perhaps to utilize the elephant metaphor as a possibility of introducing a much more nuanced discussion about the environment, which was more an issue of coexistence and tolerance uh, for all other living things. And I think that's where the journey starts. Mm. 
let's look at where the journey's brought you now because there have been a number of other elephant projects in the, in between times. But going back to the elephant in particular, uh, Nomko Bulwani, who's there in Grahamstown at the moment, I mean, the, the issue around those elephants, aside from their, their magnetism, because it, they, they were surrounded by children when we were there. Everybody wanted to sort of touch them and feel with them and have their pictures taken with them. Is that they are they are made out of public enemy number one, which is the yes. the disused tire. Indeed. So the symbolism of that is is what just expand on uh, your thinking. Uh, you know, as a technological society and an intelligence, you know, we live sort of embalmed, so to say, our present and our our future is embalmed within the utilization of what we now refer to as technologically toxic byproducts of that which we've consumed in order to survive. So uh, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's more complex than saying that you start a, a conceptual process of having a clear idea. It's almost like you fall into it and then you let uh, intuitively retrospectively to certain conclusions which are which 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 are very interesting and and in this particular case the idea that innovation and imagination embraced within the creative process can and does create the dilemma that we in but also is the only thing that will provide solution for the future. So utilizing these pieces of toxic debris that seems to be almost nuclear proof as a, as a creative medium suggests metaphorically that out of the embrace of the worst, a better can be imagined. And I think that's that's really what it's all about. Yeah. Just looking at them, I mean, I keep referring to them as giant-sized pachyderms. In actual fact, they're, they're just a little bit sm smaller than life-size, in fact. Um, Nongkung Bulwani is, is just a little bit smaller than your average elephant. Just roughly how many recycled tyres did it take to create her? It's, it's difficult to know, you know, but... The you know, the tires, uh, I, I work with a company in, in the city of Durban who, uh, who, who specializes in recycling and using tires for, you know, for bin linings and bucky mats and stuff like that. And it, it illustrates that even within the commercial marketplace, there are potential innovative possibilities, you know, mm. for these recycled materials. We just haven't really imagined what those could be. Uh, they come already pre-cut into strips, so we estimated that the collective, the, the weight of the elephant is probably about 1 point, is probably 1.6 ton. It is it's virtually impossible to imagine how many tires went into her, but it's extraordinary that I mean, the weight of the tire is, is, is significant, you know, So, yeah. it, but it's very difficult for me to estimate has been. We've done this exercise about how many tires. I think we did a rough guess. We probably said probably close to about 400 motor car tires yeah. went into it. Yeah. 
I guess it doesn't matter. We're all just sort of um, quite fixated on statistics and numbers. But, you know, talking of statistics, in a minute we're going to be, or later on in the show, we're going to be talking about airlines. And we all know that they are amongst the greediest uh, industries, fuel-wise, in the world. We're going to be talking about how they're looking to green themselves. But just going back to Nonku Bulwani, um, she's travelled all over the world. No, no, Kubawani came into being as a, con- as a, as a result of a, co- a conversation with Dr. Ian Player. Um, and then that audacious move, because I hardly knew Dr. Player. I, after I'd made the elephants on the beach, uh, beach that I placed on the beaches of Belgium, and realized that there, there was a possibility of utilizing this metaphor, I knew I had to have somebody who embodied the very spirit and essence of the conservation movement. And that led me to Dr. Player. And uh, I went to him and said, would you consider being the patron of the Human Elephant Foundation, which was the the administrative uh, NGO foundation framework that I needed if I was going to start these kind of conversations within the public space? And... Uh, I went to find Ian and had a conversation with him and asked him if he would consider being the patron and, you know, full, ex- fully expecting that he would simply <laughs> turn me down flatly. And he looked at me and he said, is it possible for me to resist the call of the elephant? And with that, he agreed and then phoned me up a week later and he said, Andres, why don't you make an elephant and send it so we can send it to Mexico for the Wild Nine Conference in Mexico, which is a convocation of leading Earth advocates. And in doing so, I then set about and I made Nomkubawani and about six months later, I phoned Ian up and said, to him, and the elephant is ready, what shall I do? He said, well, I'm just send it to Mexico. I said, well, I didn't realize that was part of the deal. I said, no, no, you must send it to Mexico. Anyway, end of the day, we launched a campaign in the city of Durban, and with local business and private citizens, we managed to raise the money, and we sent the elephant to Mexico. Once in Mexico, we thought, well, elephants by their very nature must be nomadic, and with it, we will design an environmental educational program which is specifically geared to children, as we need to invoke and release this debate with children as the future sort of imagining of our world, imaginers. And so with the University of Chicago, we designed an educational program that accompanied Nongkubuwani as she traveled through nine states in the United States of America and attracted hundreds of thousands of children who engaged creative programs around what, what their relationship and their visions would be and what they could do in their immediate environments. Because I really believe the answer is to work with small in order to address the larger. Mm. 
Well, it would have gladdened your heart to see so many children playing around your elephants uh, there in Grahamstown. So lovely. What a, what a wonderful thing. So it's also interesting to know that finally her resting place will be right there at the uh, Wilderness Leadership School at the Stainbank Nature Reserve, which is their headquarters. Andres, thank you so much. It's been a real joy. And I have to say, I had a look at your... Um, your website as well, on which I see wonderful pictures of elephants, not least the one that's in Durban, sort of emerging out of the uh, emerging out of the pavement. But that's a whole another story in its own right, and Indeed. perhaps at a later stage we'll talk again. Thank you, thank you for your time. Thank Good luck. You. Thank you to you and your listeners. Pleasure. Andres Borta, who uh, is a sculptor, and if you'd like to see Nomkubulwani, the place to go to is the uh, the Village Green at Grahamstown. It's on and through until Sunday, I think, so you've still got plenty of time to go and see it. After that, she will finally, oh, who knows, she may be making her way all around the world, but she will finally be getting her way back to the headquarters, Wilderness Leadership School. And if you'd like to have a look at Andres' uh, website, it's www.andresandresbota.net. Well, next, also in Grahamstown, was the chair of the youth food movement of the Netherlands. He's Joris Lohman. Well, the YFM, as they're fondly known, is part of the International Slow Food Youth Network. And Joris himself is also a founder of the annual Food Film Festival of Amsterdam. He was one of the speakers at uh, the National Arts Festival Thinkfest, where he spoke about the organisation's objective, which it seems is to actively change the future of food and farming. Well, we've got him on the line, Graham Sound. Hi, Joris. Hello. Nice to you? have you with us. Very, very well. Thank you very much. So I believe that your talk has already happened there at the Thinkfest, or is it still to come? Yes. No, it was uh, yesterday uh, morning at 10 o'clock. Okay. Yeah. It was um, really nice, nice, nice turn up, and uh, I really enjoyed myself. Good, good, excellent. A lot of interaction with the with the audience. Yeah, actually, it was a really um, diverse crowd. Um, normally, I hold talks also for people that are you know from the biz, from the from the food industry, farmers. Yeah. But there were a lot of students and just people that were introduced uh, interested in the subject. So it was really nice. Excellent. Well, tell us a little bit about well, a number of things. But tell us first about the YFM, the Youth Food, food Movement of the Netherlands. What, who are you? What are you all about? Well, we describe ourselves as a network of young people that are trying to change the world through food, actually. Um, so uh, we are an interdisciplinary network. We uh, bring together chefs, uh, farmers, uh, people that work in the food industry, uh, students of, of uh, different food subjects, food-related subjects. Um, and on the basis of the, of the philosophy of slow food, and we are actually part of this international slow food movement, um, we are doing all kinds of projects to, to try to, well, first on, raise awareness about the global food system, how it's organized, and second on, try to steer it in a direction that we think it's more desirable um, and actually what we do mainly to reach out to consumers we have this food film festival which I, uh, I co-founded a couple of years ago three years ago where we showcase a variety of um, documentaries on, on food issues uh, and we have our own restaurant and we have talks about about food um, and this uh, well this turned out to be a very uh, interesting festival last year we had over 8,000 vi uh, visitors um, and the most important thing for the YFM uh, pro other project is actually our academy uh, where we bring uh, this group of 25 uh, young professionals and students from different perspectives together and, and, and for a half a year training program to look at all the aspects of the food system so we have a day about farming about fishery 
uh, we try to create this like kind of a think tank of an, and, 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 and create a new generation of open-minded critical thinkers in the in the food system who think about every each and everything that they eat one of the things about the slow food movement as, as I understand it, it it's really quite a gourmet thing I think you know people mm-hmm. associate it with yeah. slow lingering food that's been beautifully produced and beautifully presented but I, the way I see your organization is that while you're thinking gourmet you're also thinking cautionary yeah well, the, the, unfortunately, the, well, unfortunately, uh, it, in, especially in the more richer countries and, and also in the Netherlands where I'm from, um, slow food over the years has, has gotten this image of being a gourmet mm. association of people that like to enjoy good food and, and you know, and which is fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. But it's uh, not that what we want to uh, achieve as young people. Uh, we have the feeling that, I mean, there's so much things going on in the food system, like event, environmental problems and, you know, uh, in unequal distribution in the food chain, all these kinds of things, and we really need to uh, start making a change. So that's actually why we founded the youth food movement. So we take this philosophy of, of slow food, which is about uh, good, clean, and fair food. Uh, you know, it's about taste, but especially also about how it's produced in an environmentally sustainable way and about equal distribution. And we are trying to like renew the organization, bring new young people and, and also maybe a little bit more of activism and, and, and energy uh, and, and actually trying to change things. So um, there's nothing wrong with gourmet, but it's not the only thing that we have to do. Um, and then also uh, in, 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 in the basis, the core philosophy of, of slow food is not only about gourmet and about like uh, eating well. Um, we try to see gastronomy as, an, uh, as everything that has to do with food from, from the farm uh, to, to the fork, so you know, not only in the restaurant, not only, not only about uh, high-level eating, but everything that's involved. And this is the, the core of the philosophy of slow food. And it's, in my some, uh, view, sometimes a pity that it's perceived as, yes. of, as only being about uh, nice food. And I, I actively try to change that uh, vision as well. Yes. Well, with the, with the, the very title, the the Slow Food Youth Network, already gives yeah. it a sort of slightly different spin. So uh, I'm just thinking that you're wanting to change the, you know, the change the. Future future of food and farming, which when you're in a sort of agricultural situation, one is can see what's happening and see what's going on. But when you're in an urban situation, mm. you know, you tend not to see that, you know, you just buy your food because there it right is on the shelf and it's it's not a problem. So are you are you working with urban people? Are you trying to get to rural areas? Are you trying to get into developed countries? Yeah. Through whom are you networking? Well, actually, the most important thing from my view, and that's something that we're doing uh, in the Netherlands mainly, but also trying to um, uh, work on internationally, is the connection between urban-based consumers uh, and farmers. Um, Because, well, actually, it's also partly um, a personal experience that when I got involved in food issues, when I'm a political scientist from training, so I got most of my information on the food system from books. Uh, And when I really got involved in, in the food system, I went and visited farms and I talked to especially young farmers. Um, and, 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 you know, the vision that you have from the city uh, that, on the one hand, the shelves are always filled, um, well, not everywhere in the world, but in, 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 uh, in Amsterdam at least, um, and on the other hand, that you have, you know, worries about how the food is produced and you hear stories about animal welfare and about pesticide use and things like this, this and you have this idea that, that it has to change, but if you, have, if you start uh, talking to young farmers and seeing what kind of difficulties they have in trying to um, start working in more sustainable ways. Uh, I think this, this, this dialogue and this, this discussion between the city and the, and the countryside is, is very uh, important. So um, one of our main projects in the Netherlands as well is, is to have um, 
this online uh, dialogue between city people and, and, and farmers. So we have like a blog series um, that uh, that farmers write about issues like, you know, why do we, do we have to put our, uh, our cattle in the meadow, which is uh, an issue in the Netherlands, or why do we use pesticides or things like that. We have um, uh, city people react to this. And also what we're doing at festivals and things in the city, we invite a, people, uh, we invite a farmer to come and speak, so just uh, like a meet and greet, meet a farmer. It sounds really easy, but it's, uh, mm. you know, people are very uh, interested and they, and they learn so, much, you know, so many new things when they're talking to, uh, to farmers. I think this, this dialogue is very crucial in, you know, creating this new storyline and creating this new idea of how we should farm and, and, and eat in the future. Yes, and perhaps a sort of transparency. I'm sure, you know, as yeah. uh, having been involved in the Food Film Festival, yeah. I'm sure you would know about films like um, Our Daily Bread. Yes. And, and there is a whole slew of different films which are really quite shocking. And yes. I think a lot of people who are food consumers, which is all of us, actually don't know too much about the background to exactly. how food is produced. And sometimes you don't want to know because what the, the reality of it is it is quite difficult to, to swallow, quite I literally. Uh, exactly. <coughs> Actually, our daily bread, and also um, uh, we feed the world. Is another like famous uh, f- uh, food documentary. Uh, were in my inspiration uh, to start doing the food film festival actually because I saw these films and I was. Um, shocked, but also like fascinated about um, this full shelf that we have in the city every day, uh, and that we take a, take for granted um, what what is behind it, and, and what kind of industrialized food system makes it possible that we have so many so, so uh, such a diverse um, uh, supply of food. Um, and then also, I you know in my journey of of, um, of starting to talk to farmers more often and go visit them, I also saw that. Um, uh, the images that are being being brought about in in um, uh, We Feed the World, for instance, um, and our daily bread are not, you know, there's it's it's not the only vision. There's also a lot of farmers that are producing in in, in a sustainable way and are innovative and they're trying to find out new uh, new new ways to to produce in the future. So I think also that you know this negative um, uh, image of, of of farms and of the agricultural sector can also hold some innovation back. Um, but I mean, you know, information and, and, and letting people know how our food is produced is, is very important if we want to be able to to, to talk and to to have a, a new vision of how we how we should produce food in the future. Because if you're only critical and you don't know, you know, yeah. uh, what's going on, then you don't know what what direction to go. Yeah, sure. There's never only just one story, is there? But yeah. um, in terms of solutions, you're looking to actively change the future of yeah. food and farming. One of your solutions is to have people get together to dialogue, to debate, to understand where where everybody is coming from. But have you got any solutions in terms of, of sustainability? Because one of the things that drives farmers mm-hmm. is, is commercial interest. I yeah. mean, we've all got to be real about that. Yeah. What solutions have you got to make commercial sustainable as well? Yeah. Well, what we try to do um, ourselves, like in solution-wise, is, is our academy, of course. Like you know, education is a very powerful tool to change uh, things in the in the long term. And also, we're doing educational projects with uh, with schools, with children, because you have to start there. Um, but uh, I think at this moment in time, this dialogue is very important. I mean, it's not only about talking. Of course, you have to do stuff. Um, but this dialogue at this moment in time, in, from my perspective, is very important because we're living in some kind of a transition phase. Like for the last 50 years, we've been trying to create, uh, to, to, to make as much food as possible uh, at, a, at, a, at a cheap price. Um, but we have seen that this, I mean, that this worked. We have a lot, of, a lot of food, but we are also seeing this negative bio-effects like environmental issues and animal welfare and these things like this. Um, and at the moment, there's like 
two solutions that are being presented. On the one hand, it's, you know, we have to produce even more because in 2050 we have 9 billion people to feed. We have to do it a little bit more sustainable, but, you know, we have to keep on uh, produ producing. Uh, and the other story is like, no, we have to go maybe uh, more small-scale and, and, and organic food and, uh, you know, urban gardening and, and making it more of a social thing, which is obviously a story that talks to the slow food movement and, and talks to me more. Uh, but I think both stories are um, wrong. I mean, there's, it's not the one hand on the other hand. So what we should do in, in, in the near future, and actually this is the, the moment to have this dialogue, is to get these two stories together uh, and create a, a new story that is about sustainability at the core, as a, as a core value. Um, and yes, we have to produce food, and yes, we have to do it maybe on a, on a large scale, but also revaluing food, and, and as, you, as, you, as you mentioned, not seeing food as, um, as a commodity, but seeing, something as see, as seeing it as something that's very crucial in, uh, in how we shape our societies. And that's something that we can achieve, hopefully, uh, through dialogue and while at the same time doing um, you know, projects to get people involved in the issue and, 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 and educate uh, young professionals and children. Yeah. Joris, I'm going to give out your website because I think it's really interesting for people to have a look. I, I'd long to know what your take was on you know, driving through the farmlands of the Eastern Cape there, uh -huh. if, you, if you had any feelings about uh, what you saw, but perhaps another day. Yeah. But thank you very much for your time and thank let me give out the, the website me. and good luck with all your, your endeavours. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Joris Lohmann, he is the chair of the Youth Food Movement of the Netherlands, also founder of the annual Food, food Film Festival of Amsterdam. If you'd like to find out a bit more, it's, uh, it's youthfoodmovement.nl, youthfoodmovement.nl. Well, here on the Enviro Show, we're going to stay with youth and the future because today saw the close of the Youth Water Summit that was uh, took place at the Birchwood Hotel in Boxburg, or certainly the, the closing ceremony did. And it was where the Deputy Minister of Water and Environmental Affairs, Ms. Rejoice Mabudafazi MP, awarded prizes to some of the youth for best water conservation innovations. Well, we have her on the line to tell us all about it and uh, what interesting and exciting innovations the youth came up with. Deputy Minister, are you with us? Yes, I'm with you. Hi, thank you so much. Good for evening. Thank you for joining us at the, this late hour. Um, tell me first, before you get on to the, uh, the water competition prizes, the Youth Water Summit, it, it took place over a few days, I think. What was the purpose of yes. it? What happened? Yes, well, we have this annual, it's annual, this is the fifth one, the Water Summit. We saw it is very important that our youth grow up understanding the challenges that we face, but also coming up with solutions and also seeing uh, water as a career. And it's important on uh, social issues and economic issues. And also to hear from them what is their view, what do they think about it, how can we protect this important uh, issue that, uh, of water with the challenge of climate change. So we're gathered here, uh, different ages, different classes, because of our, our vision 2020 that we start them at grade R up to grade uh, 12, and we also have youth out of school, how they come up with policy issues, how they see uh, the water, which policies they think that will be, can be implemented. But above all, when we do this, uh, those the youth that are still young, uh, grade 6, grade uh, 8, they come up with uh, expressing themselves. It's either they're talking about the importance of water, how we can use them economically, how we can um, conserve the water. So they express that 
through poetry, uh, drama, song. Uh, they also have. They also have. We have grade nine to eleven that they come with innovations. Those innovations, what technology could be used as part of. Uh, as part of conserving the water, I'm mm. sorry about it. Mm. So, you know, the youth now, there are many that really are aspiring to contribute uh, on water issues as engineers, as scientists. So the competition that is the, 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 the schools and the youth that won at provincial level, all the nine provinces are here. And... Those who will win, the overall winner, the school that will win, will be given a, we'll do a media classroom. We, we partner with companies like MTN. We put in uh, the we put in the the, the 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 computers for the schools and internet. But also those who win at the inter- innovative ways, where we take them along to the international Stockholm International Water Week, where they'll compete with the whole globe. We we won about twice at international level. Mm. But we're encouraging them to do more research, to come to express their idea of conserving water, of cleaning the water, of making sure that come uh, 2050, we still have water in, in our country, in South Africa, which is a water-stressed uh, country. So... They also become, but you know, if you teach a small child, a grad grade R, one, two, three, when they arrive at home, they will always call you as a parent to order. That don't do this, you're wasting water. Yeah. So, yes, yes. It, it, it's basically that, that we want them to see you. Water is a career, and also to say that water is becoming scarce through to climate change. How can we conserve it? How can water not be polluted? How can we make sure that was enough water for the economy, for social issues? Yeah, as you quite rightly say, it's really important to get them very young because, you know, for a lot of people, it's too late. You know, when you've grown up with having plenty of water, it's quite difficult to change your habits and be conscious of of the usage of it. So the sort of um, innovations that they came up with, did they work individually or in groups within their classes, within their grades? How did it work? No, they, they, they work in groups. Uh, some, you, you, they work alone, but what we do, we really partner them with universities. Okay. That we have got this idea. Uh, uh, this idea, I think if we use this method, we can conserve uh, the water that is there, or we can clean water, or we can use less water when we are planting. So, and then they work with uh, with, with universities to develop the idea that comes. But the idea comes from them. I always make an example of um, of the windmill kids who have grown where their windmills, they see that windmill going on, and yet the water, the dam is full and it's spilling off. They say, but if we can come up with technology that once the dam is full, it automatically switches off and so that we don't waste water. Mm-hmm. The kids who have done that, who have Sort of, of such ideas. There are quite many ideas that they have. You, you know, you'll be very surprised that the youth has got so much. And the little ones, they, when they do their poetry, when they do their essay, or when they are drawing, they will show you things that, what, how they perceive water, how do you think that we should treat the water, and that uh, we mustn't pollute the water, throwing things next to the river or in the river. What's going to happen? 
the waterborne diseases, they do drama through that. So it's really wonderful to get it from them, not somebody talking on their behalf of, or teaching them, but those are original ideas. And the youth, youth out of school, they come with policies, the policies that they see that this can work. And how can they unite as youth in order that they conserve water? How can, how can they use that water uh, being, being water that is, being is scarce, but we can use it for ourselves? So the, the winning projects, I think there were a number of different prizes. They were what? Give us an idea of what the, what the innovations oh, were. Yes, the, the overall winner, uh, it will be a school where we build, where it's a media classroom where we put in computers for them and the faxes and we pay for their internet for but, two but what, years. What were they? What were they? We, feel, we feel they must uh, connect with the world. And most of them are in the rural areas. Actually, we encourage the rural schools to, to participate where there's no computer next to them, where they just hear that there is something like a computer. So, and they are, they are, they are cut out of the world. And then also, of course, they also get some money. And the overall winner on Innovatives is the one, the ones that we take along to the Stockholm International Water Week that always happen annually mm. in September. But can you give in us an, I- an idea of the innovations that the winners came up with? What were their good ideas? Yes, they are quite every year. They come with a different one. Uh, I, this one, because I, I can't say as you are going to be announcing tomorrow. Oh, it's because tomorrow. I, I can't tell you. Oh, you, 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 it's you tomorrow. I'm tomorrow. so sorry. Okay, so I thought yes. you were being a little bit guarded. Absolutely, yes. quite rightly so. Okay, well, then I'll leave you to, to make the announcements tomorrow. But then yes. just just on that, you talk about the sort uh, about these young people, you know, eventually getting jobs in the water industry. Like what? Give us, a, you know, if anybody's listening yes. and they've got young people, they'd like to direct them into those sort of work, that sort of line of work. What could they be doing? Yes, we were encouraging them to you know, to take water as a career. We need engineers. Those that are there are aging. Actually, we don't have enough engineers. Many municipalities and I don't have many engineers because we don't have much. So we encourage them to be engineers, to be researchers, to be scientists. And we've got the, they've got even their organization where they say the young engineers, uh, as a youth, is they've organized themselves. So we need that. That is why as a, as a department, we're also a, a supporting them, giving them bursaries uh, to further their, their education at universities or at FET colleges. So uh, that is how we're contributing that we get them. I mean, you, you, you use, we use, you and I maybe, I don't know how old we are, but we used not to have so many choices, yeah. <laughs> like being an engineer, you see, water engineer. So we are encouraging them by yeah. doing this, and yeah. quite many have expressed that they would love to be. You know, Deputy Minister, just before we spoke to you, we were talking to a young man from the Netherlands who was talking about um, the youth food movement and talking about the future of food and farming. And one of the, whilst it's important that each and every one of us take responsibility for the water that we use, you know, turning the taps off and on and that sort of thing, um, one of the, the greediest, the thirstiest industries, of course, is agriculture. Do you, what, is that something that's come up, you know, in, in the Youth uh, Water Summit, that, you know, the idea of farming having to think slightly differently? 
Yes, actually, there, there are some of these issues that they were, they, were, they were discussing about it, that we have to change our way of agriculture, mm. that we do our agriculture in a way that uh, we don't take much water. And, I mean, the simple things, even in our own, in our own world, uh, we say that, please, don't water your, your gardens during the day. You must do it early in the morning or late in the afternoon. Uh, that, that's a way of conserving. So also we must change our way of, of agriculture. We should do it in a way that will take just less water. Absolutely. Well, hopefully you're busy producing a whole new generation of very water-conscious young people because I think water is going to be a, a very big issue or lack of water is going to be a very big issue with us for a very long time. Deputy Minister, thank you very much. Always such a pleasure to have a chat and I look forward to hearing who the winners are. Uh, do keep yes. us posted and then we'll be able to make the announcement perhaps on the show yes, next it's week. Yes, it's a guarded secret. Absolutely. And tomorrow you can ask me about that question, I'll do it. Lovely. Okay, thank thank you, you so much. Take care. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Deputy Minister of uh, of Minister of Water and Environmental Affairs, uh, Rejoice Mabuda Fazi. Always such a pleasure to ch- chat to you. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. Can I ask you one question before you go? Depend on what the question is. You won't think me less of a man if I ask? I might. I've been needing a woman perspective on this. Do you think I should shave my moustache? Yes. I was just saying to myself just then, he looks so damn ugly with that moustache. Really? No. Thought you was going to ask me something more important than that. That's important. My physical appearance is important to the people. Well, have you asked your wife? No. The Mountaintop. Martin Luther King Jr. as you've never seen him before. Directed by Warunasiani and starring Sinlo Sabutani and Mwenya Kabwe. On at the Market Theatre from the 12th of June until the 21st of July. Book at CompuTicket or go to www.markettheatre.co.za in partnership with SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. And here on the Enviro Show, next up, we're going to be talking about the airline industry. Well, the airline industry or the air air transport generally is not exactly synonymous with environmental friendliness. I'm sure you know that. In fact, it's probably quite the reverse, given the amount of fuel that they use. But very conscious or consciousness of that, I suppose, if you like, has uh, made SA Express make moves towards making themselves just that little bit more sustainable in a number of ways, but principally through a project called Butazonke. Well, on the line, we have Peter Mashaba. He is GM Technical of SA Express. Hi, Peter. Hi. Hi, Jim. It's Nancy. Nice Nancy. to have you with us, yes. Peter, tell us a little bit about, I mean, is, this is a concerted effort on the part of your airline. Is it? Did everybody sit down around a round table and say, okay, guys, we've got to do something about our greedy industry? Yes, uh, and that's correct. Uh, I mean, as the airline, we looked at that as much as we know that the direct emissions of the airlines is to do with fuel, but also we looked at the low-hanging fruit, uh, whereby we identified that the, we need to recycle the waste that we use in our offices and the waste that comes from our onboard aircraft that comes from uh, the, the services that we provide to our, service, um, to our passengers. And in, in that light, that's when we looked at the strategy to say that we need to engage with organizations that can recycle this waste in attempt to help us in terms of the, the carbon emissions. 
Yes, absolutely. But I mean, each and every time one flies, there's whole mountains of stuff and you think, oh my goodness me, what is going to happen to all this? But b before we get on to the niceties, which is the stuff that us as passengers see, the, the biggest area of um, the biggest area of your carbon footprint really is fuel. Must be. Yes, the, the, the airline's biggest, uh, I mean, carbon emissions, it comes from fuel. I mean, burning fuel, when you fly passengers, that is the biggest carbon emissions that we as the airline, we are emitting to the environment. Yes. So that, do you have any idea? I mean, can you give us any sort of figures? How much does a, a flight, I mean, say, you know, Cape Town to Joburg, any idea how much fuel that uses? Uh, it, it, it depends. Like right now, if you look at South African Express, we are operating three types of aircraft. We are operating a CRJ200, we are operating a CRJ700, and we are operating a Q400. Now, if you look at the three types of aircraft that I've just mentioned, uh, you will recall that in the last six years, SA Express has embarked on the refitting of the fleet. Yeah. And the last aircraft type that I've mentioned, the Q400, it appears to be the most efficient aircraft that we are operating so far in terms of the fuel burn and in terms of the, I mean, the, the, if you have to look at the, 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 the emissions that one has to calculate as per the passenger that we fly. Have they, have they made it, um, the, the Q400, has it, has it uh, the, the engine been produced differently or is the plane itself lighter? I mean, in, in very simple terms, how is it yeah. more in, economical? Yes, it's, it's economical in the sense that the, the engine manufacturers have improved the fuel efficiency in terms of how the engines utilize the fuel. And also in terms of the weight that has been put into the aircraft, some of the materials that have been used on the aircraft have been used light materials to make the aircraft so light so that it can burn less fuel for operation. So that's a good thing. Is that sort of a general trend... Um a general trend across the world. I mean, there are airlines, there are thousands, millions of, of planes in the air, all the, well, certain thousands, in the air all the time. Is that a general trend that yes, planes that's are getting a, lighter? Yes, that's a general trend. You will recall that the recent IATA annual general meeting that was held in Cape Town, that all 240 IATA member airlines have endorsed a resolution in terms of carbon emissions and they have agreed on the four strategies and among others it talks about looking at the new technology aircraft whereby the manufacturers together with the airlines are looking at producing a fuel efficient aircraft into the airline industry so that that's the fuel uh, aspect of it the, the other aspect you know the bringing it back to sort of passenger level this issue of recycling um, this, it always seems like there's quite a lot of waste and, and waste that could be, certainly could be cut down on airlines. Is that part of the strategy to cut down the amount of food, the amount of uh, packaging, all that sort of thing? Yes, that's correct. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the packaging in terms of the food that we, we present to our passengers, we are also looking in terms of how best can we prevent, I mean, present the food to our passengers at the same time also being mindful of uh, I mean reducing our carbon emissions and 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 that is part of the strategy as, as as we are embarking on recycling the waste that comes from on board the aircraft what is the what's the most guilty party I mean is it bottles is it is it throwaway food paperwork what is it 
Normally, you'll be looking at the paperwork and the cans and the bottles that we utilize on board as we provide in the services to our passengers. And I think that's where the Butazonke project comes in. Yes, and exactly correct. That's where the Buta Bonke project comes in because they take all this waste that is coming from on board and even from our offices and they take that to go and recycle that for its express. And, and is it working? Is it, where is it happening? Is it, is it countrywide? Is it wherever your, fl- your planes fly? Or have you got a central depot? Yes, uh, it's working at, the, at our head office and even our, at our odd stations. They go and collect this waste that we uh, I mean, receiving from our own board. The, that's the recycling, but I'm just thinking in terms of weight. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of weight uh, in terms of people's luggage. I know that some airlines are more sort of fussy about how much uh, hand luggage you can carry, you know, how much, uh, uh, how much sort of actual luggage that goes in the hold. Do you, can you sort of foresee a time when people are required to take less? Uh, yes, in, in the near future, you, you're looking at, I mean, currently right now, if you look at the, the hand luggage that the passengers are allowed to take on board, you're looking at maximum of 7 kg yeah. that the passengers are allowed to bring in board. And, and of course, for the cargo hold, the, the luggage that the passengers are allowed to bring on the cargo hold, it should not exceed 20 kg. Now, one you think that in the near future, probably we'll be revisiting uh, such weights. And uh, I mean, all this thing is done in the spirit of saying that we, we definitely we need to respond to our environmental impact and reducing our carbon emissions because the more weight you put on an aircraft and the more fuel you're going to burn. So the less weight you put on an aircraft, then the less weight, you, I mean, the less fuel you're going to burn. Yeah, but, but inevitably, if people are traveling, um, you know, there's a limit to how little everybody can really take. It's, it's a big problem, isn't it? Just whilst we're talking about big problems, what about the weight of the passengers themselves? There are cases where some people are considerably heavier than others. Is that an issue? Can you see that being uh, addressed in any way? Well, that, that, that is the problem that uh, it, it, it cannot be addressed because we cannot discriminate because of weight, etc. But however, uh, that is countered by, if you look at in terms of the, the passengers that we fly, you will find a passenger that probably is making an example in terms of weight. The passenger that weighs 150 kg, and you will fly a passenger that weighs 60 kg. Now, that automatically, it, it kind of balances in terms of the weight of the passenger, the average weight of the passengers that you're looking at. Do you, do, can you see a time, Peter, when it, there may be, um, I mean, just going back to the food issue, where there always it seems to be plenty, can you see a time when people will be very much more limited what's available for eating-wise on a plane? I mean, there are already some airlines where you don't get anything. Well, I wouldn't say I see the time where people will not be allowed to eat on board, but one will say that, uh, you know, in the near future, you'll be seeing that more food, I mean, less food will be carried on board rather than less, I mean, allowing, I mean, restricting passengers to eat less. But the airlines will be carrying less food on board just to make sure that, you know, they carry less weight as much as they can. There's also been talk, I think, and you, you will certainly know this, of um, passengers being required to pay a sort of a, a levy uh, or, you know, if they 
uh, some way that they can sort of offset the cost of their flights. Is that something that you, uh, as an airline, you might encourage? Yes, uh, it's, it's part of our strategy as well uh, as we're busy rolling our environmental impact strategy of S-Express. One of the initiatives is to look at how also the passengers can assist in terms of reducing the carbon emissions, whereby passengers can voluntarily uh, contribute an amount to equivalent of 10 rent or 20 rent, whereby SA Express will engage with a, a, an, an entity whereby that, that money that is being contributed by passengers either will be used to plant in trees or to look at the rural areas whereby we can provide uh, them with services that will assist us in terms of uh, responding to carbon yeah. emissions. Yeah, it's a really good idea because I think a lot of people don't think twice about it. They're busy trying to get to where they're going to. Peter Mashaba, thank you very much. Very best of luck with those sustainable strategies. Thank you for joining us. Thank Take you very care. much. Thank you. Peter Mashaba is GM Technical of SA Express. And we ha also have on the line uh, Teboho Moluzzi. He's the manager of the Buta Zonke project that we were talking about there with Peter. Hi, Teboho. Hi, hi, hi there. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, Tabohu, you're the manager of the Butazonke project. How's it going so far? So far we are doing okay. We have been with SA since last year. And we are, as Peter has just mentioned, that uh, we are doing recycling for on their behalf. Okay. Is it making a difference? I mean, how much? Give us an idea of the sort of quantities that you're being able to recycle. At this stage, is uh, on a monthly basis, we are able to can uh, collect, especially of the office paper, like anything in the region between the 500 kg to a, to a ton. So that's in terms of the office. Um, but what about from the aircraft itself? From aircraft, it was like something that was still on on uh, in the pipeline, and we haven't like yet uh, uh, started working on it. But then uh, I'm liaising at the moment with uh, Sis Porsche, one of the ladies at the IBA Express, and uh, we'll be like starting that uh, very soon. I mean, the good news about this is that not only is it sort of cleaning up the environment, but it's also it's, it's creating jobs. Is, is that yeah? Is that part of yes. is that part of the plan? Yes, that is that is part of the plan because at this stage we've got two ladies that we are working with we are, who are helping us around the airport uh, doing recycling, especially from the SA Express. Is it going to? Is the whole project going to expand? I mean, early days at this stage, but do you hope that it will get bigger? Definitely, that's what we are looking at. We we are looking at ex expanding, especially getting <clears throat> almost all the. The airlines around the airport and uh, all the companies that are based around Kempton because that's where we are mostly uh, concentrating at. And are you also concentrating at um, educating the passengers? D definitely, yes. About recycling, yeah, that's what we are because recycling it contributes less pollution and later thus creating a healthier, greener, and uh, cleaner society. Tibok, um, if anybody would like to know more about Butazonke, where can they find out? Find out? I can leave you with our our our, our, our email address okay. and uh, our, our number. That that's where they were at the moment we we are available available at. Okay, give give us the phone number. Yes. Okay, our phone number. I'm available on my cell. It's zero seven eight. Yeah. Four three eight. Yes. Four three eight one. Let me give that give that out. Thank you very much. I'm going to give out your phone number if anybody would like to know a little bit more about how it's working and uh, perhaps they can uh, get involved in some way. Thank you.
Thanks a lot. Uh. Jibohu is with uh, the Buta Zonke project that's part of uh, SA Express. And if you would like to find out more, it's 078 438 4381. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about the Enviro Show, you can find us on our Facebook page. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, that's it. Thanks very much, Green Team, Dream Green Team. That's uh, Kim Winter and Rob Parkin, and I'm Nancy Richards, and I'll be back again tomorrow with Otherwise. But right now, it's uh, the time of day when we hand right over to Mr. Kirker. Hi, Stephen. <laughs>